Hey, I'm O'Teal. And I'm Mike, and this is the Comes a Time podcast. Today, we have the one, the only, Big Steve Parrish. Yeah. For any of, any of you out there who don't know, Big Steve's been with the Grateful Dead family for f- over 50 years. Uh, he ended up managing Jerry Garcia Band uh, before it was all over. He's done everything, roadie, roadie to manager. So we're excited to bring it to you guys. And we want to remind you all that Comes a Time is part of the Osiris Media family. And you can check out all the Osiris podcasts at OsirisPod.com. Hey, Osiris listeners. We want to tell you about our friends at Sunset Lake CBD who support this show. Sunset Lake CBD is a Vermont hemp farm crafting affordable CBD products designed to help with sleep and stress without breaking the bank. If you haven't tried CBD before, take it from me, it's a game changer. I use Sunset Lake's tincture every night before I go to bed, helping me get solid, restful sleep. And their gummies are great for daytime. Check out their new Good Vibes gummies, which have just a bit of hemp-derived THC to help you relax and unwind. Sunset Lake CBD crafts products with hemp grown on their family farm and ships them directly to customers. They have tinctures, salves, edibles, coffee, smokables, and even pet products. By the way, their CBD chocolate fudge is awesome. Check them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use coupon code TIME for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. So good to have you on here. Uh, oh, thank you. I am having a hard day today, but just seeing your face is helping me out, man. Nah, well, you, man. It, it's same for you. You always uh, been a person that I, I like talking to, you know, because we both know where we're at, you know, and we try to help each other. We always try to bring each other up with our conversations. So I'm only too glad to be here today with you and Mike. And, uh, you know, we, we really know, all of us owe so much to Jerry that it's just an honor to do this kind of stuff, really. Yeah, it really is. It's so funny that, you know, like August 1st to the 9th, the days between, it's it's nothing changes for me. <laughs> Every day is one right. of the days I'm listening right. 24-7 to anything I could get my hands on, you know, and and uh, it's just, and, and you, being able to listen to you, I mean, Steve, I, I'm, I've thought many times of sending you an email and offering you just to like record my Thank morning, you. my morning alarm, just so it's like, Hey, this is Steve. Everything's <laughs> going to be fucking okay. No, man. Think you'll stay in bed if I do that. You won't get <laughs> up, man. But you know, the thing is that it's really surreal. These times are a little surreal for me being that Jerry and I were so close, you know, and we were together every day for so long with the two bands, you know, anybody who has two bands, O'Teal could tell us, you know, it's, it's, it's more challenging than people think because each band is a little bit jealous of the other, and they're also <laughs> they're scheduling things that get crazy. So with the Garcia Band and the Jerry and the Grateful Dead, we always knew, you know, Jerry always told me, he said, Grateful Dead comes first, but you got to balance that other band out too. You got people to feed, you got, you know, uh, places to go. And so uh, the challenge of, of me seeing him now, we uh, loved by so many people, I had to get over the fact that he always was a little shy about it. You know, he didn't like talking to audiences and he knew he was afraid of this because 
he had such a charismatic personality and he understood that. I can't believe how many pictures there are and how many videos there are and how many interviews there were because when we were doing it, we seemed like everything was clandestine in our world and we were trying to hide a lot of times, you know, but, but we didn't succeed, I see, obviously, and thank goodness we didn't because I love all that record now. Yeah. I saw an interview with Jay Blakesburg recently and he said that, you know, the Grateful Dead was like the one band back in the early days that there was, you could bring a camera into the show. You could take pictures and you know, the, you didn't actually need a press pass or a, or, um, you know, photography pass. Yeah, it was like that, but I wish I'd have taken Jay and uh, drowned him in a big 55 gallon drum, but I didn't. But the thing is that, (laughs) <laughs> you know, if you pushy enough, photographers would get on the stage with us. Yeah. I go back, way back. Let me tell you, back in the Haight-Ashbury days, you had Jim Marshall. There was nobody more pushy than that guy. He would jump right up on top of Pigpen's organ and start <laughs> taking pictures, you know. And that was my, one of my first dealings with him. I said, what are you doing? Get off of here, you know, at the Fillmore West one time. And he wouldn't budge, man. And, you know, you have to get into these. So we had an attitude about photography for a while yeah. <laughs> but uh we just left it we didn't care enough to, to to waste the time to go through the press pass thing because everybody could take a camera in in those days it was before security you carried anything into the show you wanted you know but photographers i'm glad that jay was persistent you know because he got some good shots of a lot of things and that way you realize that there's a reason in the grateful dead everything around it was like destiny you know just everything that happened, it seems like, was for a reason. And now when you look back on it, it makes more sense for what you did at the time. You know, So certain people did manage to get up there with us in, in picture taken, but we were a pretty tight-knit group in the early days because we had the police chasing us all the time because we had nefarious characters with us on the road. So Glad they let you guys, t- uh, or you let the audiences tape also, like audio tape. I mean, you know, that the, was a big deal too. Wow. When that started <laughs> and we, you know, some of the crew guys at first, we didn't really realize how much, uh, that was going to benefit the grateful dead thing. But we were with Warner brothers at the time and they came around and said, don't let people record. So there was this constant tug and back and forth, you know, should we go out there and stop those guys? And we did a couple of times and it was just nasty business, you know? And then when Jerry made the statement of everybody, once he plays it, it belongs to the people. Yeah. That was like Abraham Lincoln, I thought. I said to myself, holy, he just emancipated music, you know? (laughs) And and the record companies went crazy on us, you know? And uh, I remember a gig right after that, Joe Smith, who was uh, Warner Brothers president at the time, he came up on stage. He comes walking up. He comes up to me, Steve, I got... I'm here to say hi to Jerry. I said, wait a minute, you know, we're about to start the show. And so I walk over to Jerry and I said, Joe Smith is here. And Jerry said, well, tell him to go fuck himself. And I said, oh, okay. And I went over and I told him that. And he loved it. He, he wrote that in his autobiography. You know, he's passed on now. But that was the way we treated record companies. We weren't in the normal thing because yeah. it, it was just our way. And so the whole thing started recording everything first. The guys played songs for years and years before we recorded them, you know, because it was difficult to record at times. It took a long time and it was complicated and we were, everybody was a perfectionist on everything, you know? Yeah. You know, it's so funny too, like, like what you had said um, earlier and it's, 
you watch some of these interviews and you could see right. that the guys are kind of just playing with the interviewers, you know, like some guys like, what do you mean? You're, you're not a dance band. What do you mean? You're a dance band. And like Mickey and Bobby are just laughing under there. That was the cool thing about the grateful dead always to me was that like, I felt like I was in on the joke. You know what I mean? Like I felt like it was just, we're all on this goof together and uh, right. it just was like, be perfectly imperfect and be okay with it. And as a fan yeah. from a child, that's kind of what I got out of, you know, the Grateful Dead. Well, you know, because our philosophy was that we kept each other in line that way. You know, as we started off in nightclubs and then theaters, then stadiums, you know, and, and going from all staying in a couple of rooms together to having, you know, really nice places to stay and everything. So you had to watch your head getting a little too fat, you know, or filling up with your own self. So everybody kept each other in line that way. We didn't play that game that we were any, you know, different. And no, no other band treated their crew like the Grateful Dead treated us. And we knew that. And so we had this thing where we were right in there with them, making decisions on everything at every meeting. And we felt so much a part of it. And that was something that, you know, Jerry really liked that. He loved the crew and he loved that we created ourselves into that way. And uh, we were allowed to do whatever we wanted. You could wake up in the morning and do anything you wanted, but if you couldn't do your job, what good were you, you know? So we, we learned, uh, that's why uh, I like smoking cannabis, because you could come out there into a stadium with 40,000 people, if Jerry's pedal's broken or something, you gotta fix it. And you know, he's not playing around with you. When you come out there, he's not saying happy birthday, son. He wants that pedal fixed, and he, you know, in a no, whatever it was, it was broken. And so you had to be able to snap into that right away. And that was where cannabis was our main thing. We all loved it, you know. We did so many psychedelics in the, in the early days because we had Owsley with us, and he was experimenting on us, right? And everything that he tried to make, he would make SDP, and we took it. SDP was a four-day trip. You didn't come down for four days, you know. And only in the Grateful Dead could that be, where you worked together. Guys like Ramrod and Jackson, you know, uh, and all the people teaching us, Healy and Owsley and Matthews. We had a, a scene where you learned every day. It was like being in the Renaissance. And music was changing. It was getting to a place. We felt that. And we realized that we were at this apex of where rock and roll was now becoming something real. Before that, it was like a stepchild to showbiz, you know. Nobody respected it. It was considered sleazy or whatever, you know. So we were at that place where all of a sudden these hippies, as they called us, because we were smoking pot everywhere. We had long hair. We went everywhere in the country, and we met people that didn't agree with us a lot, you know. So we were fighting with the unions. We were fighting with the police. We were fighting with uh, promoters. And just trying to go to hotels even and smoke pot and do what we did. We had to constantly be on this, on this thing that was going on, you know, and it was like living theater all the time, 24 seven, every day, never a dull moment because we rehearsed every day that we didn't. So we were all together so much. We knew everything about each other too. And like Jerry and I spent so much time together talking because he would always come to the shows early as he could come. You know, he'd be there at one o'clock in the afternoon. He knew what everybody did, man. He knew every worker. He knew all the stuff that happened to make the show go down. The other guys knew too because we talked about everything. But, you know, they would come a little closer to sound check time and, and then they'd figure everything out. But Jerry was a real 
a leader in the way that he didn't want to be. He didn't want to say, I'm the leader of the Grateful Dead. He hated that, you know, but he couldn't help it because everybody wanted to talk to him, you know, and the other guys got a little lazy at times, didn't have to do as many interviews because they always wanted to talk to Jerry. There would be some group stuff that got pretty crazy, like you're saying, where you always had to have fun and, and who was the best person to poke fun at. Uh, the reporters or whoever was questioning you at <laughs> the, the outsiders, time. the normals, you know, <laughs> I felt like I'm super grateful for those interviews, man. Cause I felt like, uh, I got to know him, you know, watching a lot of those interviews on yeah. YouTube, you know, as opposed to just reading them, you know, and there was, a, was I think good. I even got an audio book that was like <clears throat> a bunch of interviews that hadn't come out yet. Like the last ones, and um, and it was him talking, you know, and uh, you really could just feel his spirit, you know, like the it, it made so many things just make sense. Just exactly. watching his, uh, his easy, gentle manner, you know. And he, I, I was watching some of that stuff myself recently, and he comes across just as he was, you know, and it's beautiful because he was talking about Neil Cassidy in this one, and he was talking just like he would talk to. To me, if I was sitting there, you know, he had that thing where he he knew authority was just bull crap, you know, and he didn't didn't uh, he didn't get all uh, he got a little nervous at times when he do stuff, but he he could just jump right into it, you know. He had a great mind, sharp mind, he was really smart, and uh, you know, he and I had a love for old movies. We went way back to the silent films. We would sit and talk about them. We knew people because we've both been insomniacs our whole life and we realized that, you know, and yeah. so we used to talk about old movies. He loved that. And he loved the whole thing about being part of an art, a living theater art thing like the Grateful Dead really was perfect for all of us. You know, we, we seemed to all be drawn together. You know, I don't know if you got to know some of the other guys on the crew, but everybody was a character, you know, but they still did their jobs in an amazing way. And the Grateful Dead, the way we all came to it, it was like your life, my whole life, I was heading there. I, I didn't even realize it. Everything I was taught by my dad, you know, how to use tools, how to do electronics, how to do all this stuff, because he was a kind of guy like that. And he was also a teamster, high up in the teamsters. He worked his way up from the ground up, man. And so he taught me all about that, how you deal with unions, how you work with people. And that came in so handy when we were on the road later. And, and it was like that for everybody. They had a, a piece that fit together so perfectly. It was really a beautiful thing. Yeah. It's funny because you talk about this. I, we always come back to this in conversations uh, between me and Mike about how I talk about a lot of people. Just like when I look back at my life, it does seem like orchestrated somehow. Like the very. Oh, yeah. The most See here how everything parts. leads up to this day. Yeah, it's always you know, those like, lyrics from Black you know, Peter that just, yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that yeah. pointed it out more than anything, O'Teal, and I know you're interested in this, the way that we got to Egypt, I could tell you guys, I could sit here and talk for a couple of hours about how we yes. got there. Yes. And the thing was that it was incredible. I mean, it, it, we had to go to the State Department of the United States. We had to want to do it so bad. And we had to have this moment in history where there was a peace accord going on. Jimmy Carter was in the White House. He had the Egyptians and the Israelis sitting down there with him yeah. while we were heading to Egypt. It was unbelievable time of peace was coming. And yeah. so we were, it opened this door for us and we were there 
we were there because of reasons of friends of ours going to Egypt on a vacation and then telling us about it. And we said, we got to go there, you know. We challenged people to put it together for us, and we had to end up doing it ourselves a lot, you know. Yeah. And then when we were there, we're there at a full eclipse of the moon, playing at the Great Pyramid, right at the foot of the pyramid. No one else had ever done it. And we spent weeks there. We stayed there for a while. So we knew everybody in the Mina village who was there. Their ancestors were there forever. These people were there. You know, I mean, yeah. Cairo is an amazing city for one yeah. thing. And, and so uh, we stayed right out there with them. And this thing happened. And I didn't find out about it till 10 years later when I read something on the new internet that was just starting about that the, in the book of the Egyptian Book of the Dead, we knew from the Haight-Ashbury days that the Egyptian Book of the Dead said that the Grateful Dead will pull the sled of the dead in the afterworld, yeah. which was interesting to us all. But we never read the whole thing because we were too busy living life. You know, things about this thick, the Book of the Dead. And so finally, when we came back from Egypt, somebody had found in there where it said that the Grateful Dead will make a huge noise, a great noise at the Great Pyramid 25 years before the age of Aquarius. And by God, that was the exact freaking day, man. <laughs> I mean, we were there in September of 78, and that was the right time, and that was the noise that had to be made for the whole universe. I Jesus. can't explain it. I can't explain it. Any hey, man. I can. <laughs> it's the <laughs> mysteries, man. The mystery of mysteries. I'm dying to go back. I would give anything to go back with them. Oh, me too. Me too. You I've know? been thinking about it so much lately. <laughs> uh, it was so incredible. Can you imagine a stage, Oteo, where you walk down the back steps and you're in the Sahara Desert? I mean, there's pyramids all around you. And if you walked out there, you, there were jackals, there were camels walking around. There was like it was incredible to do a show there. It was, it was really hard. The Egyptians had yeah. no idea of casters when it came to our equipment, right? So they were rolling our cases end for end. I, I had to go out and say, hey, there's oh, wheels no. on them. I tried to show them the wheels. They had, didn't, it was so like it was a clash between uh, eternity and us, you know, and, and having the pranksters there and a couple of other friends of ours that were wild, you know, everybody came with us. And you, we climb up the pyramid, and, and there you are on top of the pyramid, and you see people had carved their names in there in 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. It's unbelievable. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> I, spent, I got to spend some time with Kesey before he passed away in 2001. Oh, and uh, he, you know, I, I lived at his farm with him for a couple of days, and we talked Jerry the whole time, man. And he would tell me how, yeah, yeah and, and he said that, uh, you know, he, um, wouldn't he didn't sleep well so he would sit up and read and he would just fall asleep reading and then get up and talk to you about the stuff he was reading that night and when Kesey would talk about Jerry his eyes just you could see the love and you could see you know we went back into into Kesey's yard and we scraped some moss off the original bus and the moss had like given a little like vibrance to the paint job so Ken got all excited and we started you know and it was just such an honor to meet just like you another like I mean, the, the close friendship and camaraderie that you have when you become friends with someone like you became friends with Jerry, you know, yeah. deep down, like this is a very special bond that barely oh, anybody yeah. else in the world has. But there were so many people like that. You mentioned Ken Kesey. Now, Kesey, I felt that way about Kesey, too, because the first time I met him, he grabbed my hand and he shook it and he said, 
new blood. I like that. You know, and he made me feel so good. He knew he was an amazing guy with uh, what you talk about, that vibrancy for life that he had, you know. And when you went to his house and you saw that wrestling mat in the living room and you knew somebody was going to wrestle somebody, you know what I mean? <laughs> it, it was that way. And, and he would make us buck hay with him. And me and him, one day, we went out to the barn. Because every time we went to Eugene, we went out to spend time at his ranch, too, with him, you know, at his farm in Springfield. And so one day I'm out there with him and he says, come on out to the barn, you know, and, and uh, we went out there and he says, Get, grab that shovel. And there was a chicken house by the side of the barn. He said, I shoveled up some of that. He said, put it on this hot plate. He had a hot plate that was all heated up with a pizza tray on it. And so he said, I said, what should I do with this chicken shit? He said, put it on a pizza tray. So I put a pile of it on there. Right. And now, you know, his brother, his brother, Chuck Keezy had a, a creamery. Yeah. And so they, were good friends of ours too. Chuck is a great guy. And what happened was they, he, he had a funnel from the, from the dairy and he put that over it and it came, a hose came off of that and he turned the hot plate up to high. I said, what, what's going on, man? And by God, chicken shit heated up, turns into nitrous oxide and me and him were getting high on nitrous <laughs> oxide. It was the worst tasting stuff I ever tasted in my life. And you wouldn't want to kiss me that day. Let me tell you, man. <laughs> we were smoking chicken shit. I said, what the hell is going on? I'm finally smoking chicken shit now, you know? And, and you go, what is the Grateful Dead taking me to, you know, now? When other times, uh, I always tell the story about, you know, how weird when he was writing the song Cassidy, we all lived together up at Rucka Rucka. Yeah. And just me and him were out there that day. The other guys in the crew lived there and Bobby lived there. But, and there was a couple of gals out there and this girl, Eileen, was having a baby, you know? And, and so just her luck, it was only me and we're out there. And so we delivered this baby together, but he was basically sitting in the corner playing the changes to the song Cassidy, which oh became God. the name of that child. And there I was, and I said to myself, what, this is my job? I've, now I'm delivering a baby, you know? I mean, you <laughs> never knew what the Grateful Dead was gonna take you to. And you had to rise to the occasion. Yeah, just, just that way. That's just like what you said in the uh, in the the documentary, the Amazon documentary. Yeah. When who's in charge here? Who's in charge here? The moment the the, the truck is in charge. That flat tire is in charge. The the That's band right. is in charge. Like that that to me is such an incredible way to look at life. You know, like it, it, there is nothing permanent. The only permanent is change. So you can't be I'm in charge all the time. No, you're not there all the time to make the important calls. You have to be malleable and flexible and let the situation call for what it needs or well, else it would have completely thing. fucking exploded. Of course. Well, that was that thing of flexibility that came out of the acid test with the pranksters, because when you take enough LSD, that's how you feel. You're flexible to the universe or else you're going to break. If you stand rigid to that, you can't make it. And we saw guys do that. Remember, at the time we started, when I started working for the band, Vietnam was raging, crazy riots in the street and, and, we we had all these things going on, but in the Grateful Dead was like a refuge of insanity. You know, it was chaos in our world too, but we knew that world. And and when we mixed with the straight world, it was like, wow, man, this is like living on the road like Kerouac wrote it, you know? And so Jerry and Hunter were so tied to that whole beatnik thing, man. They loved it. They talked about it all the time, you know? And they were, they were somebody that you could learn from, those two guys, because they were older than me, and and I learned from everybody, and I passed it on. You know, that's the way that goes. And the whole scene became this amazing 
look, it's still alive. And look at all that's going on now. Yeah. You know, Oteo, look at all that Oteo gets to do now and enjoy life like he deserves it, you know. Because you know what kills me, man? The, the Grateful Dead and all these bands that we love are the soundtrack to two revolutions. I mean, right. people think these were riots. It's like, these ain't riots. You want to see some riots back then? Those were riots, man. It was, well, yeah, you yes. were getting on. But what's going on now is a bigger change than the 60s. It really is because now people have become enlightened. And that's what happens with time, you know. I realized that when I was a kid, you know, uh, in 1959, we went for a drive way through the South. My dad decided we're going to go all over America. We drove through the South. And I, I never saw that before, you know, uh, where uh, I walked into a bathroom and a lady grabbed me and she said, you don't go in there, son. You don't go in that one. The door was hanging off. It was not clean. And she pointed me to another restroom, you know, which was for white people. And so when we saw these things, it, 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 it was blowing my mind that people had this going on because I never saw it. Then as I grew up and we went with the Grateful Dead to all these places, it was changing. I could feel it changing. You know, and the civil rights thing had happened. And, and we all thought, oh, it's all done. It's done. You know, everything's perfect. But it wasn't, you know. And now we're going to get it perfect. And that's what you can feel, you know. Uh, this is an amazing time. It, never give up on the time and the history. We're living through a time right now that is challenging, bigger than anything ever. Bigger than anything ever, man. Yeah, I mean, you were saying before we got on about, like, being quarantined and what it was like for you, like, being stuck at home for the first time. That's a whole new. That wasn't going on back then, you know. How's it been for you since you quarantined? Well, I've been really doing a lot of self-searching, you know, and working on myself because we all, you know, when you you don't go through over fifty years of of that life without having some things happen to you that are pretty heavy, you know. And I lost a family in a car accident, a wife and two kids, you know. And, but the Grateful Dead was there for me, man. They were there. It happened on it uh, during a New Year's run in 1984. And I remember the whole band came to my house the next morning and they said, Steve, do you want, we'll cancel the shows. We're not going to do them. I said, are you crazy? No, I got to be at the show. What am I going to do? Sit here and stare at the walls? The wow. show was our place. It was our sacrament. It was our church. It was our everything, you know. And that's where we had to be. And those guys took care of me through that, you know? And so when you have these kind of bonds in life, it goes so far beyond what people think showbiz is about. It's showbiz is about the show, but what goes on to get that show at that moment every day is a challenge. And everybody's lives have come to play. You know, you've got so many different elements. It, it was like a ballet in the background all the time too, of workers, as you well know, because you've seen it all. You've moved up through showbiz in the same way, you know? And you probably sometimes don't even think of playing music as showbiz, but it is. It's totally showbiz. It's amazing, too, to see, like, you know, when you get to do certain size venues and get to do certain rooms. I'm a little bit of a nerd for the venues that I play. Like, I've had the chance to do Radio City Music Hall and a couple of, uh, wow. you know, of theaters right. and stuff. And, and to walk around and think about who stepped on that wood before me and to really take, you know, go to, like, rooms in Nashville and some of these other places and, and all up and yeah. down the country. And, and it really does kind of bring a, a real sense of, of humility to it. 
we always did that. Every theater we went to, I'd pick out the oldest stage hand. And in those days, now you're talking the late 60s, these guys were there for many, since the 20s, most of them, you know. And they would tell me, I would say, what, tell me what happened here, you know. And we'd be at the Stanley Theater in Jersey City or something. And the guy would say, you know, show me. He said, come here. And he showed me some pictures in some back office they had. You know, it was people like Al Jolson and the, the vaudeville people and uh, all the um, stuff that went before us because vaudeville was a big part of what showbiz was from the turn of the century till the 30s. Then radio, movies, TV, you know, all that stuff replaced it. So we were a swing back to that live performance again. And being in those old theaters, you could feel them come alive. And I remember talking to Jerry one day, and I said, he was, uh, I said, do you ever, you feel the vibes of all these people in these theaters, you know? And he said, every time we play Not Fade Away, I see Buddy Holly in that box up there, looking down, huh. and you know? And, and I realized that that's the way, you see, uh, O'Teal could tell you this, you're a musician, you know. I noticed this right away when I started working for the bands, that when they're playing on stage, they're very aware of everything, but they're in the fifth dimension, I call it, because they can't move like a normal person, so they're vulnerable. In other words, like in the old days, the Winterland or anywhere, it would be just a free-for-all on stage, you know, and we would be there behind the amps trying to keep things together. But if somebody reached up, and Jerry had his cigarettes up there or a drink on his Never was there a drink in those days, but if he if they grabbed something off his amp, he would turn around no matter what he was doing, playing or singing. So we started to understand that the whole environment, the theater, everything, to me, from how we got there, all made the show. All these other elements that people don't even realize or think about. And Jerry, when I would tell him who played there, you know, I said, well, this is where, you know, Abbott and Costello first did the who's on first routine or something. Oh, wow, that man. night, he would come out and he, during the drums in space, he would signature that. He would play it in there and I would know, you know, he put oh. something in there and I could hear it. You know, he'd play That's All Folks or something, if it was something to do with anything, you know, where we could relate to a song. Uh, and that's why he had a huge amount of songs in his head. And he the first day that he and I really were alone at the Matrix, when nobody else wanted to take his, his twin reverb and his uh, Stratica, uh, excuse me, his Strat that, uh, over to the Matrix. And, he, and so me and Ramrod and him were standing in front of the Lambic where we worked and a studio in the city, San Francisco. And, and Jerry said, you know, he asked Ramrod. And Ramrod said, you know, I got to go home because he'd just gotten hitched up to this gal and he wanted to go home. And I said, I'll do it, Jerry. You know, I had a Cadillac that was a uh, hundred bucks. I bought it from Ramrod. It was a beautiful 51 caddy and I opened the trunk and we put the twin in there and the guitar and we went over to the matrix, you know, and Jerry and I banged on the door. We sitting there alone in the dark. The guy let us in begrudgingly. He didn't want us there. And Jerry and I began to talk. And so he showed me setting up his amp and his guitar, how he liked it. And then he started just playing music, you know, and, and I, we started playing the game of name that tune. I was throwing every tune I knew out at him, right? And then I said to him, well, how about Stardust? And he just played it right away. And he said, that's my mother's favorite song. I said, well, my uncle, Mitchell Parrish, wrote that song with Hoagie Carmichael and wrote 500 other standards, you know, uh, Deep Purple and uh, Stars Fell on Alabama. And what? All, 
Oh yeah, and and, and huh. Tony, look him up, Mitchell Paris. He's a, he he was head of ASCAP for many years, and so I finally I called old Mitch, Uncle Mitch up because I hadn't seen him since I was a kid, and he started coming to see us. And wow. first thing he asked me was so funny. He said, "You guys, you doing okay in showbiz? You're making money. You're not going to hit on me for money." I said, "No." <laughs> <laughs> and so he came down, and him and Jerry loved each other, man. And so Jerry's mom was a great lady, and she love that song so you see music was already predestined for me when i came into it man and jerry and i with that bond of of that because who doesn't love their mother you know his, he loved his mom and uh she played that song every day so he played it right away and and when we started to talk to uncle mitch he would tell us about showbiz at the turn of the century he was almost 100 years old at that time and he, he would come to the shows at Madison Square Garden. He lived in Dakota in New York. You know, he was a real gent. And um, he would tell us about how songs had introductions. And you, in the early days when he started, waiters sang your songs in restaurants. And then there was sheet music. Then he, he was a Tin Pan Alley guy the whole way. So these bridges of showbiz that come together for us all the time are things that make it so that we realized that we went all the way back to the Roman Colosseum. Jerry and I talked about that, how showbiz was just a, a, a thing that we were involved in. So he never tried to take it too serious. When you talk about the interviews, he didn't take it all too serious ever. He knew. Everybody gets so serious about everything. Like when they, we listened to the news one time and they'd say, oh, the United States has a world debt of this and that. And I said, who do we owe it to? Who do we really owe it to? And you start thinking about, yeah, who do we owe it to? Man, why? Can't we just wipe everything free? He, he was like working for the Grateful Dead. And then I'll let you guys talk. I know I'm going on way too much. No, 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 no. Please keep going. It was like being with the Lost Boys, man. We did whatever we wanted, and the band backed us up. And, and having Jerry to work for, he was the greatest boss in the fucking world. I couldn't believe how lucky I was. And I, when people say, how did you field to work with him and all that i said what would you have done would you have turned him down that day and said no i'm not taking your amp I, I was happy to do it and that led to us becoming so close that he felt like you're part of my thing i can't play you're part of the equipment you're part of my thing and that's a great feeling so to be a part of something that keeps succeeding you know most bands don't make it most bands don't make two nickels to rub together we knew that all the bands i worked for quicksilver i worked for a lot of bands that just didn't make it you know and and when you realize that uh that this thing was working because it had everything going against it in the early days everybody <laughs> wanted records and we couldn't we weren't on records because we played songs were too long we were we weren't accepted everywhere we went because of our attitudes and our drug use but the whole world came around to us see <laughs> And now everybody's talking about taking psychedelics to heal themselves and to bring themselves up. But we knew all that stuff. We knew it did, you couldn't be depressed when you were high. We knew that you couldn't go into your shell too deep. If you did, somebody would come over and give you a hug or pat you on the back, back you know, and, and you'd come out of it. And nobody in The Grateful Dead, I learned early on when they were playing, they came off the stage one time. I said, wow, man, that was great. What a set. 
And, and Weir says to me, yeah, well, tell Mickey to play in the same place that I'm playing. And Jerry said, yeah, and what about, what the fuck were you doing, Weir, during that last? He said, what were you playing? And I said, oh, boy, I'm never saying another word like that. <laughs> because you have to be part of it in that way. We were part of it and, and right with them. And so you get to know, you know, when Jerry, I don't know any other band or crew that's ever done this, but I, I could do it to this day with Jerry. When he broke a string, Ramrod taught me how he changed it while he was playing. He didn't even stop playing. If he broke an E string, we would get, I'd get one ready. I'd He'd turn to me and, and he would turn up too, you know, and, and, but he, I'd slip that string and while he was playing, we'd get it going. Ramrod would get up to the top and clip it off the extra string on there and he'd tune it right in real quick. And, no you know, kidding. We did that kind of thing together. Yeah, like a pit the, crew. Same with if he blew a speaker or if, or if something blew. We, we never stopped. He never stopped playing because that was the thing. He hated to stop for a second. I, used, I played drums, and you know we, he would play with me every day. And the Garcia band, when we set up, it was just me and him. So we, he would be noodling away, and I'd be playing drums. And first thing he taught me, we played. We were playing, and he working me out, man. He was playing super fast, and I'm keeping up with him, you know, trying as hard as I can. And then I stopped and he said, you just blew it, man. You just did the one thing you never do in music. I said, what? He said, you stop. <laughs> and so wow. I said, yeah, thank you. Thank you for teaching me that, you know. But, that's incredible, uh, man. That's why we have we had a band, uh, the crew. Ramrod would play guitar. Healy played lead. Ramrod played rhythm. I played drums. And uh, Jackson played bass. And some of the other guys would sit in and out. And was called, and Weir came in. We were play before before sound check. You know, we'd be all set up, and so Weir came in one day and he said, "Oh, if it isn't the ass bites from hell," and so that name stuck. And we would play, and people <laughs> liked it. You know, if the band was was late or something, we just do, do a little opener set, kind of. And well, we there's tapes of this the then. What's that? There's, there's tapes of this then. No, there's. I don't think there's. I've never heard a tape of it. We we might have one a rehearsal or something, but it was pretty rudimental stuff. But we would play at the hotels on anything we could get our hands on, and uh, so then one day the guys came in and they said, you know, they said you guys are getting pretty good. And Jerry said to me, you could see, you could be a drummer, you could play with anybody. And I said, oh no, I'm not leaving you guys, man, no way, <laughs> because we knew how hard it was to be a musician in life. And so then recently this last uh, skull and roses that didn't happen those guys challenged me to come back with that band and of course ramrod's dead jackson's dead you know it's it's a little different and but i put it together with the guys we had healy it wasn't there but um aj and who does weird stuff now and uh vadim and who does oteal stuff yeah um what do you call it and mike mcginn who's a sound guy who's been with us forever and so we started rehearsing, and by God, we were ready to go, man. And I challenged myself. The dean was playing drums, and I got out there and started singing. I said, hey, if I can talk on the radio, I can sing. Yeah, and man. we started doing it. And it blew my mind because it, it sort of rubs off on you, you I, know, after you spend that much time in your life. And I would pay I good money my, for... I would pay good money for a Steve Parrish holiday album. <laughs> oh, good idea, man. Christmas favorites. Oh, yes. I like that, man. But uh, you see, there's nothing. One thing the Grateful Dead teaches you is that there's no limit. There's no limit to anything, man. And you got to go for it. You go sure, for gusto. Yeah. That's the thing I love about Jerry. It's like it's his openness. You know, he was open to so many different kinds of music and really like, I mean, 
well, you know, a lot of people I didn't realize until I got into like old in the way, like how really good he is on banjo. I I play banjo. I studied. He was the banjo champion of California in 1962. He won the award, man. Number one banjo player, and he went on a trek in the 60s. You know about that, right? He went all throughout the South to every bluegrass festival he could go to. Him and Sandy Rothman, and they were driving around. And this is a funny story, O'Deal. Not funny, but it was Freedom Summer. And he didn't even realize it. <laughs> they were driving around looking for music. And there's these two white guys in a car in Mississippi and all those places. And they were getting some hard looks, man. Yeah. Because people could tell right away that California boys weren't here for no good. They were up to no good, you know. But Jerry always could get through to people, man, with his music. And he, there's pictures of him playing with Steve Martin in those, you know, at, at festivals like that. He met Grisman in those days. So he never liked it. You know, he would always tell me I, acoustic music is where I, what I love, but his chops were so different playing electric guitar. He didn't like to go back and forth, you know, and, uh, but he finally did do a lot more of that. And I was glad because he's really a great, with any, any string instrument he could pick up and yeah, play steel it. guitar. And I mean, the, oh, the, new, the, the new writers are is like listening to the, like their first two out two or three albums is some of my favorite stuff. Cause it's just Jerry completely unencumbered playing pedal steel and Mickey on yeah. Billy on drums. I can't, can't remember which drummer was on drums that, with them, but such fun stuff. And it's like, that's the yeah, thing that yeah. being a fan, being a fan of the band was like, it was a, a doorway to music history because I like to listen to the stuff that my heroes listen to. You know what I mean? Like I like to get into, like I listen to big railroad blues and mama tried and all that. And then it's like, well, where does that come from? What, what little dovetail off the highway is that? And then you go down that road and then not for kids only. And you hear all these traditional children's songs and what's that road. And it's just so well, cool when the music you love. Like, you know, I realized well, what it was, you see Jerry's dad died when he was three or three or four years old now, you know, and, and he drowned right in front of his eyes and he was fly fishing. And so Jerry's mom had a bar in San Francisco, and it was right next to Maritime Hall. It was a tough sailor bar in the late 40s and early 50s. And the guys that came in there were hardcore, as Jerry called them, you'd always call them stews. They, so we called them stews or, or drunks in those days, you know. And they were sailors, and they were rough. And so he had to get up every morning. Think about this. If you were seven years old and eight years old and your brother's a little older than you, Tiff was a couple of years older than him, and they would go down and have to make their breakfast while these guys came in at 6 a.m. to have their first drink of the day. And they were rough, man, and they were talking shit, and they were giving him a lot of crap. Hey, kid, give me a drink or something. You know, this kind of stuff. You can tell me about it. It was scary for him. Then one day, he really, he saw the jukebox. And the jukebox was an old jukebox full of music from the 40s, 30s. You know how they were in San Francisco or anywhere. Jukeboxes didn't get changed as often. So he got to love all kinds of music. And there was country and western on there. And there was uh, ballads. And there was all kinds of stuff. And he turned that up. He told me as loud as he could. He found out where the knob was in the back. And he would just drown that out. And so music became solace to him. And a way for it to come to a place. I realized this, that, you know, people might have written biographies about him, but you know the man, if you talk to him every day of your life, you get to piece this stuff together. And music became a solace for him, you know, but he, 
like all of us. We're born and we, we, we don't even believe in ourselves sometimes. Because we, people say something offhand when you're a kid and you think, oh man, right, they're right. I can't ever do that. You know, he, he had that too. He had that a lot. He had that missing finger, which uh, I could tell you all about that. But we'll save it because that's a whole story into itself, how that affected his life. But I'll tell you something. He never dropped a pick in the entire time that I did it. One time I remember him dropping a pick because he just held on to him so tight and he had a way of holding it between the stump and his finger and he just was strong. He was a strong oh, person. Yeah. And, and so he never put that guitar down. He never put it down. He played and played and played everywhere he went. And the first thing he wanted was that guitar, even at the hotel. I had to keep the guitar with me all the time and amps because he'd call me all the time, come to my room, bring, set that up. It was a day off or anything. He just wanted to play. And, and so what a beautiful thing. And, you know, I'm sure O'Teal could tell you the same thing for him. He had to live with those music instruments. And Jerry taught us a love of instruments. He taught me how to take care of them. We taught uh, each other. We shared stuff. Uh, when I, we would go out to music stores, he would go, like, for instance, you talk about his pedal steel. The first one he got, we went to Scotty's. We were playing in St. Louis, right? And we said, let's go buy a pedal steel. And we went to Scotty's Music, this old bluegrass music place in St. Louis. And everybody there, whenever, in those days when you went to uh, music stores, everybody was jamming on the gear and stuff, you know? Yeah. And he jumped right in and was jamming, and we set up a pedal steel for him. And he never would play. There's eight pedals on his pedal steel, but he would never let me put more than three on there because he just thought he wasn't that good on it. But I thought he had a touch as good as the guys I'd heard who played it their whole lives, you know. And he, he was amazing that way. He was very humble. In, in, he wasn't telling you. He always would say, there's millions of guitar players better than me. And I said, really? I never heard one. And he said, oh, yeah, right. They're out there. And uh, he just wasn't. Uh, kind of guy that you know acted that way he was about money he cared he didn't even really think about it you know he he had to have money to live like we all did but he wasn't hung up on money like a lot of people get in life you know where money becomes the focus of everything he was an, a true artist bohemian spirit man and and he lived that to the umpteenth degree yeah. Anyway, I'm, over. Talking about, I'm talking too no, much. You guys I would love to hear no, it. that's that, great, man. It's totally great. But man, I think that, is... that whole spirit bled into the whole uh, fan base, like everything. You hear this yep. common thread from the pranksters and the, the beatniks, you know, all the way through the entire fan base. There's this openness, you know, and there's, it's definitely – you know, people with a sense of adventure too, but it's Got also Did you get it? Did you get it? Got it. Hey, yeah. <laughs> so not open to the pesky flies. <laughs> yeah. No, see that's the thing. That, that's a prime example of Jerry. That's one of the you know, interviewers. There's certain times you can't be, you know, you have to do what you gotta do. The situation's a boss. That's why I was taking up too much of my consciousness right now, man. Amen, man. Hey there, Osiris listeners. I wanted to tell you about our friends over at Smart Wolf. For more than 25 years, Smart Wool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because they want to help you play, laugh, and explore in the outdoors with every thread they knit and every step you take. Because they believe that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. They are here to help you feel good. Now, it's up to you how far you will go. 
Take 15% off of your first order at smartwool.com. Smartwool. Go far, feel good. Exactly. I would love to hear. I don't, I don't want to, like, if you don't want to talk about it, but you said with Jerry's missing finger, and that's a whole other... Well, you don't have you know, to if you don't was, want to. Uh, him and his brother were rascals like we all were. We were all oh, yeah. juvenile delinquents. And, and he got in a lot of trouble as a kid in the city, right? And so his mom realized that he was probably hanging around the bar too much and, and hanging around the city life. He lived uh, right there by the bar, and he grew up in the area of San Francisco that had all these, in those days, there was McCormick Spices, there was ham breweries. Uh, when you walked in that area, you smelled bread being baked, you know, on one block you smelled it was an industrial place, and so it was rough and tumble. And so his mother decided to ship him up to Casadero in the summer with the grandparents, who lived in the city also. And he had stories that he told me about uh, at his grandfather living with his grandparents for a while. You know, as a kid, everybody knows how wild they can get with their grandparents. You know, you can't quite keep up with you as fast. But anyway, so they sent him up to Casadero, which is way out in Sonoma. In, in the country, right, not far from where I am right now. And Casadero was a hunter's draw. It's a hunter, it was a hunter's area always, you know, and, and a few little uh, farms and ranches. So his folks there, they had uh, a, a typical little spread, and the boys were out there chopping wood one day, two brothers, you know, Jerry's about six, five or six, and his brother was about three or four years older than him. And they got into an argument and Jerry flipped him off, you know? And, and so Tiff grabbed him and put his finger on the block and put the ax up and swear. So I've talked to Tiff about it. He's dead now too. And I, I said, what happened? What was going through your mind? He said, I just wanted to show him, but he chopped his finger off, man. And I don't know if he wanted to stop himself or he was really angry, but he chopped it off and it was freakish, you know? And, and, and he was way out in the country. And Jerry told me that the only doctor there was, Old drunk, this old drunk doctor that's who, who ends up in places like that, taking care of towns like that. You yeah, know, yeah. In those days. And uh, the guy just kind of wrapped it up and he had a big boxing glove worth of bandages on his hand. And so a week later, he goes to the city and now a real doctor takes a look at it and does a little operation. But Jerry was not aware of what he was even doing because he didn't look at it and they wrapped it up again. And then, then they started, he said, then the bandage was around my whole hand and then it got smaller and smaller until I realized that I didn't have a finger there anymore. So wow. I said, well, how did you feel? He said, I was pissed off. I said, why? And he said, because I could never flip somebody off with doubles. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so anyway, always uh, a prankster. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so he took it deep inside him. I think it bothered him a lot, you know, but he, he like I say, he compensated for that. When he began to play the guitar, he he made himself work harder and make his fingers work amazingly. So you can turn the worst things around is what I learned from that in his life. You know, you never let anything defeat you and you don't stop. You never give up. Like we're all dented. It's like we're all dented cans, right, Oteal? I mean, it's literally we're all, but the stuff inside is good. And, you know, I think sometimes, Steve, about how I hear these stories about how when the band would go off tour or when, you know, they were going to take a break, you and him would go back out on the road with Jerry Band and play bars and all that. Exactly. And I almost wonder if having you 
as someone that like he knew he could like you and him were were brothers you know and at you were on both sides of that with like Jerry Band and all the other you know projects but also with the Grateful Dead so it must have been really good for him to know that he had you to count on oh, he liked that you know and he told me a couple of times you know he was so simple about business he didn't want to get into all that so we kept it as best we could he would say to me when I first, I'd ask him one time I said well how are we paying everybody from the band he said pay them good pay them as good as you can and take a hunt for yourself take a hunt uh-huh. for yourself and 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 then you know I always would make sure that it was on he knew I was honest about it you see because when you manage a band you get to deal with cash. In those days, it was cash, you know? And I always felt like, this isn't my money. This is our money, you know? And he knew that. And he didn't have to ever question that. And so when we had other managers, believe me, in the Garcia band, we did too. He tried other people, but it always ended up bad. So finally, he said to me, you know, you're here with me all the time. You're doing everything. Just do that now, okay? And so I still never gave up the equipment because the equipment to me was keeping you real. You know, so I had good brothers set up the stuff. But I, when I came in with Jerry, I still wired everything of his and, and and took care of his guitar. You know, I never gave that up because that was reality for us. And uh, he, when, when it got to times where you're talking about where we retired, but we would stay out on the road and, the, and we would fly the Garcia band out to join us at times, you know, so we could just keep going because they needed to make a living too. And he cared about them. And that band became, even though we changed a lot of different people went through there. I also did everything with him when he wanted to play on somebody's album. I went with him, you know, that was what that entailed. Anything other than Grateful Dead we did together. So I got to see him with so many amazing people, you know, yeah. from Crosby on, you know, uh, when we did, I don't remember your name, which he's been, been talked about lately a lot. How, see, he could go into a studio and one time they play the song for him and he would then run it again. And then he would play a beautiful guitar part into it. Man. And he was amazing like that, you know, really only one listen. And then he would just do it. And, uh, people loved it. And, you know, a lot of people like for Crosby, he didn't even pay him money for that. You know, there was no money exchange or anything. It was just friendship. And we came in there one night, the third night, when we were finishing up the overdubs, and Crosby had written Jerry's name out on the board, on, the, on this big plexiglass thing that sat over the board so you could kind of lean on it without messing up the board. And it was in cocaine, Jerry <laughs> Danny Garcia. Written, <laughs> you know. And that kind of stuff was, it was all, I mean, you know, people today would say, hey, man, talk to my agent. Talk to my guy, just like yeah. now, road crew guys. Hey, man, I just do guitars. That's all. If we were like that, we never would have got anywhere. You did drums, you did piano, you did everything, and you did the lights and the sound too, because you had to. And and you knew everything. You know, you did security too, because you had to. And there was no saying, I'm not going to drive the truck now after the show to the next town. Who was going to do it? That was the way it was. We, and so we, like we're talking about, we all roomed together too. You know, so when you roomed with Pigpen, you knew you were getting a whole night of him playing the blues and he was going to drink in Southern Comfort. But I cherish that now. Nobody else God wanted damn. to room with him. Yeah. And I was with him every night sometimes because guys didn't want to room with him because he kept you up all night playing the blues. But what an education, man, and what a great <laughs> thing. When you stayed with Phil, 
He knew the TV wasn't getting turned on at all, you know, never. He was going to smoke weed with you, and, and, you know, you were going to talk intellectual stuff, and it was a different kind of thing. When you were with Jerry, you, you knew you had to fall asleep before Jerry, because if you didn't, he snored so freaking loud, man. The, the walls literally bulged. I'm not kidding. In Holiday Inns, I would lay there, and if you didn't fall asleep, I, you were fucked, because you were up all night, because he, he had that <laughs> breathing, you know, and he just really let loose into his sleep. And then, you know, uh, if you moved with Weir, you knew it was pranks all night. We were going to go around pranking everybody else, crazy things that you do on the road, because he loved that. So you got to know the guys very well. You got to know each one of them and what their what their idiosyncrasies were and what they liked. If you roomed with Owsley, he came in the room and he'd take out every light bulb. He'd open his suitcase. His suitcase was nothing but light bulbs and, 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 and weird things in there. You know, he'd change every light bulb to a colored light bulb and then put tie-dyes over all the lamps and the windows and and. The what TV, the we turned the TV on, but we'd pour a glass of water in it and watch it explode, man. <laughs> in the bar. And, and uh, you know, it was stuff like that we would do. And, and we would, um, you know, we had our own way of going down the road. And so uh, we always liked candles in the room, and we burned down a couple of rooms in those <laughs> We'd forget to blow the candle out. Jackson and I, one time, we were staying in L.A. We were playing in El Monte Civic Auditorium funky place man and the promoter in those days this guy house eagler he didn't care about nothing the promoter wore a trench coat he had a newspaper under his arm he walked back and forth looking at his watch this was what promoters were like in those days and they didn't care about what was going on they said a band with a name you can draw some people so we learned to take care of ourselves if you wanted to drink at a show you found a water fountain somewhere, you know, there was no, no catering. There was no food that all started because we said, if we're going to be our lives out here, one day Jackson came around with a piece of paper and he said, what would you like if we could have some, something here at the show to eat? Cause we were eating nothing, but you know, uh, sometimes we'd get a bucket of chicken they give us or some hamburgers or, or whatever, you know, but it wasn't nourishing and it wasn't good. We weren't eating or sleeping. And so we started all that stuff because it became now everybody's got a rider. Bands go in with oh, riders yeah. that, you know, they empty supermarkets, man, to, to do it for them. But there wasn't any of that, you know, there were no frills. And so you knew you were on your own. And the Grateful Dead was great because if you got arrested, which we got arrested all the time, they bailed you out. You know, that was a big awesome. deal. Yeah, totally. Trust me, that was a big deal. And and roadies, what do you call yeah. a roadie in a suit? What do you call a roadie in a suit, Mike? You know everything. A defendant? Exactly. And so that's when we had to put <laughs> really? suits on. They'd buy yeah, suits because we had to go to court, man. And it was the only time anybody ever put a suit on. The funny thing is, Jerry sold more ties than anybody in history, and he never wore a fucking tie in his life. He hated them, man. I he love that. when he was a kid. So you're yeah. living in this world that doesn't make any sense to normal people, but then the whole world comes around to you, and it's, it's, it's amazing. Otil and I have had the, the privilege of talking to a couple of really amazing people in the Dead family. And Otil, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the throughput throughout all of this is availability, right? Just being open to that moment, right? And and just having the there's a, it's there we we talk off air a lot Otil and I Steve about how common sense seems to be lacking in our uh, world these days whether it's 
politics or wearing a mask or not wearing a mask or whatever. It doesn't matter. It's just no one's thinking about anyone else. Everybody's thinking about themselves. And it seems to me with the Grateful Dead and the family and from a fan's perspective, needing the music like a medicine and from being in it, it seems like avail- you being available and open to going with him that day to help with his guitar that set us that set on a path in a friendship that lasted forever. And mountain girl talked about it and Melvin talked about it and Bobby. And yep. it's just this thing right. of being open. Well, and, you know, it all started even bit more for that. When I was in, I was at my apartment in San Francisco, it was 1968 in the summer. And I was leaning against the wall. I went downstairs to smoke uh, something. And there was a guy right across the street from me. And he was unloading a truck and he was struggling with a base cabinet. And I didn't know what a base cabinet was. I went over there and I helped him. It was Ramrod. And by that act of kindness, he was loading into the studio there, which was PHR. And it was on Brady Alley. And it was like destiny. And from that moment on, I, I just was with him and he believed in me and I believed in him. And that opened every door. If you were Ramrod's friend, Everybody accepted you then a little bit. You still had to prove yourself to an amazing amount of people. The scene was large and vast, and there were wives, and there were kids, and there were cousins and uncles. You had to know so many people. At Winterland, everybody was there, you know, and these big shows would be just unbelievable party. It was like Paris must have been in the 20s, is all I could imagine, where everything went, you know, and all kinds of people were there, uh, you know, in San Francisco, you had an amazing gay scene that was part of it all, too. And they were out on New Year's Eve, and they would come to these shows. And Bill Graham never let the police into his shows. That's one thing he was different. He always made sure to keep them out if he could. In San Francisco, they were used to us. They didn't even bother us, man. They stayed away, you know. Uh, you had to really fuck up to get arrested in San Francisco, let me tell you that. You know, by- <laughs> <laughs> Literally blowing smoke in their face or something or trying to sell a cop something. But other than that, it was a free place. It was so magical, you know, and that was like the incubator for this thing to grow. What I'm talking about, that we were like the Lost Boys, we didn't have to follow the rules. We could do what we wanted. And so we went to places. Then one day I was sitting with Jerry. I said, let's do Broadway. You know, and we ended up doing that run in Broadway. Now, of course, Millions of people will tell you that was their idea. Now I hear it, I can't believe it. I go, what? What are you talking about? You know, because we could do it. It wasn't hard to book Jerry or to be his manager. I just looked at the kid, I say, where do we want to go? And, and you could go and somebody wanted us because he was so loved and he was so charismatic. But when we started those days playing in the nightclubs in San Francisco with the Jerry Garcia band, Tuesday nights, there'd be nobody there a lot of times, you know, it, it grew into its own thing. And, and people did knew the grateful dead, but you know, people when I'm, we're trying to get to this point roundabout, what you mentioned was that now people are so quick. Everything's a soundbite. Everything moves so fast. They don't take the time to go deep in the layers of what, what life is about, you know, and if they're getting all this false information off the internet, they don't know history anymore. And that's what really scares me because if you don't learn history and you don't study it, it's just like they say, it's going to repeat itself. And that's where we're at right now Uh, because people in politics, and I don't want to go party to party here, but I know which party it is. They were on a determined course to shut down education. I've never seen them build a school. Yeah. I've never seen, I've seen them build prisons and lots of prisons. 
But this bothered us, man. This really bothered us. And and then people now are not learning. Their reading is going down and other things that people are not understanding history. So the Grateful Dead, believe it or not, could be a guiding light for how the future should look. Because we paid homage to everything that came before us. We paid homage to the intelligent people. When we went anywhere, we, Jerry and I would go out to Washington. We'd go to the Lincoln Memorial. We'd go to the archives. We wanted to see everything. You know, and we would go all over the country. We would take trips and, and check out stuff that was historical. And to be on the road for all those years, I always wondered. I said, what? How do we get to these places we're going to? How do we get to know these places? So what I would do, I would study about the Indians that lived there, the American mm -hmm. Native Americans. And then I got away into the place. In other words, Chicago. I say, what? Chicago. It's an Algonquin word for skunk place. And when you start to understand that, when you think about America or anywhere in the world without all these, these machinations of buildings and bridges and stuff, you got the Grateful Dead view there, you see? It's all green and beautiful, and people are natural. And you're living as people should live, and you care about other people. You know, and that's something that is almost like the way we can pay homage to Jerry and to live that is to be a good person like he was, you know? And, and I remember saying to him on his birthday once, we were doing a show, and I said, wow, you're a Leo the Lion, man, right on. And he said, I'm more like the cowardly lion than that, uh, you know, Wizard of Oz. Yeah. And I said, I saw him then as that because he had talked to me many times about Burt Lars' performance there. He loved it. He could recite every word of that, you know. And, and we also liked, he liked a lot of, uh, I know I'm jumping around here a lot, but he liked uh, literature that was always nonsensical and freaks. He called everybody a freak. If he wanted to really give you in the early days, when he finally said, you know, you're a freak, Steve, that was a compliment from him yeah. because he liked freaks. He said, nobody, I don't want to be around normal people. And who have you ever met that isn't crazy? Who? <laughs> yeah, totally true. Anybody, I, tell me who's yeah. not crazy. Start from your folks, okay? That's the most straight person is the craziest. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I've been saying, yeah, I mean, anybody that's, that's willing to admit they don't know, if you could say, I don't know, then I respect you. Like if you're willing to admit yeah. that you don't yeah. know everything, then I, you, you're, you to me are an intelligent person because you're ready to listen and learn, you know? Well, Jerry taught me that too, man, because I always thought I do everything, right? And then one day he said, <laughs> he heard to me and he said, is there anything you don't fucking know, man? And then I realized <laughs> what he was trying to say. Shut up sometimes, man. You don't have to always tell a better story or do this better, you know? But my whole life, you see, I read uh, nonfiction. I, I, I did read a lot of fiction because they made us, you know, but I, the, where I, when I grew up in my room, the encyclopedia was in that room. So under, when I couldn't sleep when I'm seven years old, I was learning to read by flashlight under the covers, but I was reading the encyclopedia from cover to cover. I read, finally, in three years, I read the whole thing. And so where, I was always able to tell us where, wherever we were on the road, Wow, this is where, do you realize this is Lexington and Concord? It's right here. You know, this is where that battle happened. Or the Civil War is all over, you know, and we would talk about that stuff. And we would joke about it that day. And then Jerry would, you'd hear Jerry, you know, signature something like, you know, uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic that night or something Amazing. about where we were at. And um, it's like a way of 
of, you know, we were, when, when I wrote him, said Steve would set the pace sometimes of the comedy that we had to live with every day. If we didn't have comedy on the road, it, you were there with straight people, you know, you're in hotels, mm-hmm. you're in police stations, you're in places all the time, you're in airports. And, and in the early days of airplane flying, there were none of these rules now. You know, we didn't have to go through security, we didn't have to do anything. Uh, of course, we were rowdy and we got kicked off of planes for that a lot. So you'd be going up. <laughs> To the, to the desk, you know, and, and uh, my first tour, I remember uh, Sam Cutler, who was road managing us that day, he wasn't, you know, it was Jonathan Reister. He didn't make it. He was late with Weir. I mean, Weir always was the last guy. And so I go to start getting the tickets going. I'm talking to the lady and Weir comes running up behind me. And while I just have her attention and I'm getting her to lay out all the tickets, he starts squirting me right in the ear with a water gun, man. So in my ear that I'm getting distracted and she thinks who are these crazy people and why am I talking to this guy even, you know but in those days you could hold a plane up till everybody got there you know you see people running down the aisle it was so different and then of course it was a party once every time every day was a yeah. party every single day could use one day of a party right now man this is I, I can't wait to be back out in the crowd and just when that music starts, it's my head's going to explode. Not being able to be at a live concert and performing. Otila and I talk about it all the time, too. Just not being able to be on stage sucks. But, man. Well, do somebody I, a favor, Mike, and have your head explode at home because it's going to be a mess and somebody's going to have to clean up out there. <laughs> you don't want that, man. <laughs> all right. You got it. I'll bag it first, man. Don't worry. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> this has been absolutely unbelievable and i know that you're uh when are we gonna start, are we, when are we gonna start <laughs> i'll keep going i just need a pee break um, well you know i'm a sucker for o'teal man and me now too. i know you too you know i i love that guy and i saw that same feeling that i have that would he filled a void that i didn't even know existed you know what i oh, mean man. but now he makes so much sense to me and knowing him a little bit that I do, I love talking to him because he's got a lot of characteristics and I don't want him to hear this. So uh, he's a little bit like Jerry in some of the ways that he is about people. But really? he's got to be careful. He's got to be careful now, man. Because, yeah. you know, that's the thing that you got to finally balance in life. You just, Open this guy. He, he's got it. He's a smart guy. He figured it out. Yeah, he, he, totally he focuses is. on his family and he focuses on his friends and he loves everybody. You yeah. can't wipe that smile off his face now, even though all these things happen, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I think of what the more that I like, I'm so glad we did this podcast because talking to Mountain Girl and Melvin and Bob and talking to you, especially today, it really like brings it all together. Like you said, when Jerry said, you know, you're a freak, man. And that's, I think that's where I feel like I, what I feel like I have in common because uh, my mentor is this guy named Colonel Bruce Hampton, who was, Oh, I know him well. I yeah. Know him well. You know, he was psychic part extraterrestrial really came out of that same beat. He was pre hippie. He came out of the beat thing. Oh yeah. And, um, but he was a freak and the freaks found him. Yeah. yeah. He, he was just like a flame and all the freaks were the moths. Whether we even knew we were freaks or not, like I didn't really, I saw myself as very straight and still kind of do, but there's some freak gene in me that just always like, as soon as I met him, you know, and him and Pigpen were friends. 
That's right. That's and right. No kidding, really? Oh, wow. Yeah, him and Pigpen were friends because B- Colonel Bruce comes from this old Southern uh, Georgia military family. Right. But he was way deep, deep, deep into black music, man. Delta Blue. He's into all music, too. He's like Jerry, like super open. And, um, but Pigpen's dad, I guess, had like a, a so radio show where. He had a radio station in San Mateo, and he played what was called race music in those days, and but it was blues, you know. And my dad wouldn't let me listen to it. He said, no, you're not listening to that. But Same with uh, Colonel Bruce. You know, Colonel Bruce, I got to know him really well. I, I met him when he met when he came around to some shows and met Pig Ben, and Pig introduced me to him. But years later, we got to be really close. And he would I miss him so much because he'd call me up every day. Sometimes I'd say, Parrish knows everything. He had me. He had. He, he was one of those guys that knew you better than you know yourself. You know what I mean? And we would have all these high-level conversations about life and times and people. And I miss him dearly. He was a one of a kind for sure. Absolutely. But we all we're all one of a kind. We but all. And that's a, and he's the one that taught me that thing that you were saying. You know, he had that song basically frightened. Yeah, right. I had just left you know i was super young man like 24 and i was just couldn't figure out i was like this world is crazy so either i'm crazy or the world's crazy and i guess it's just me because i don't fit in you know and uh when i heard basically frightened <laughs> i just like latched on to bruce and he was like man let me tell you something O'Teal. it's the you know he wouldn't have said dick cheney at the time no actually maybe no, I was pre-Cheney. But, you know, he was like, these type of people are the crazy ones. And if you let them drive you crazy, you'll be crazy in a bad way. So you need to go fully, more fully into your own brand of crazy. What you're afraid of is actually your sanity. And so dive full into your sanity, which no matter how badly somebody else perceives it as crazy. And he saved my life, man. And I just was like, he freed my mind. You know, he he, uh, yeah. he changed my mind. Or he helped me see. He removed a veil or something. And I'll always be indebted to him for that. Because like you said, you can have the heaviest conversations with this guy. Or he could just like call you up and just, bah, you know. Be yeah, like, so he's tough. But he, 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 he really was a good friend. You know, he, he was supportive and he was good to talk to because he, 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 you never knew what he was going to say. But the thing about him is that I'm, I'm amazing to me that we all knew him, you know, the co- connections and threads between us that we would never realize, you know. And there's even other people like John Brown. I don't know if you ever, he was a guy that had a speaker repair shop here. But he introduced me to the colonel again because he was friends with him when they were little boys in uh Georgia, wow. Florida line right there where they lived and they hung out together. So, he, yeah. you know, um, and, and when you have people like that, like Jerry, like the Colonel, like these people, you and I now, it's our responsibility to bring their philosophies to life for people because we, we don't have them here with us anymore, but they live with us, you know, and, and that's part of the thing of the magic that is a responsibility when you are treated good by people, you have to pay that down the line. You've got to treat people good with respect, even though sometimes you, you get angry. You know, we're all made up of anger and, and sorrow and, and happiness. And if you try to stay happy, that thing about smile, just smile. You go, you go with it sometimes, you know. It's not easy. Not easy. 
Yeah, I smile back today, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, that. this was, I, and I, I hope you'll come back and, and we can start because this was nothing. I feel like we got a lot more to talk about. Yeah, I think we, we do too. We do. Yes, we it's do. Kind of funny, but we might be on to something. Yeah. But uh, you guys are really so good to talk to that I'm, I feel comfortable enough to say whatever's on my mind, you know, and that's a good thing. I mean, I, I think, you know, Otil, Otil and I had a chance to become friends and I got to, you know, I saw him play and he came to see me do some stand up in the West village in New York city. And we've just kept in touch and talked and then the pandemic hit and then all this tumultuous garbage that's everything's just so weird. And we've just stayed in touch every single day. And we thought, let's talk to the people who really. Yeah. Well, I feel like I've known you for a long time, Mike, because you know, that's the way it is when we have common, common definitely known you for a long time, you know, uh, and and that's the way it is. We're all connected in that way. And you guys are doing a great job by just letting people open up here. You know, uh, when you think about it in life, we're tested every day almost. You know, uh, how are we going to react to this or that? And Jerry was a was a good person to follow in some of that stuff because even when there were a couple of times where we got ripped off really bad by a couple of managers, right, and lost a lot of money, all the money we had. And we'd be mad as heck and want to get the guy. And Jerry would say, no, think about it. We're not calling the cops. We're not reporting this. We're not going after him because he lost every friend that he had. Think about it. The guy was with us for years. And one day chose to take money over us. And I, and I listened to Jerry that day. And I've seen that guy before, but never up close. He, he'll be out way, way out in an audience somewhere. And, yelling to me or something but he went from the top of the pile to the bottom in our world because you can't tolerate somebody who's going to take advantage of you like that when you're in a communal family setting you know and that's something also about the grateful dead honesty there's a lot of honesty people would get mad and they usually get it over with quick because you can't just like you can't go to bed angry you can't Go on stage angry because it won't work. Man, that's what I say. Uh, Thank you for saying that. I just don't understand how people can do that, man. I do not. It blows my mind, too. It blows my mind to see how many bands now, after they've made it, I can tell you bands that have made it, and I know their managers and stuff, and they're fighting each other now. Lawsuits are coming up and things like that. It blows my mind because you got to remember what we struggled through, what you went through. All bands have to do that to make it, you know. That should be a stronger bond between people, but you know, it's not always. It's not. I mean, I remember when uh, Pink Floyd was suing each other and they were on tour together. I was just like, (laughs) you know, for me, like, you know, I often use the metaphor between uh, improvisation and sex, but what we're really doing is making love, you know, and like, I cannot have a dance partner or be making love with somebody that I'm that, you know, like if we're going to sue each other or just have just, you know, willful not working it out. Like I just don't, I can't do it for very long, man. I can't do it for very long. You know, the Rolling Stones, we, we worked with them a little bit and I realized that they each had their own manager, each had their own <laughs> hotels and they were yes. still working together on stage, but there was things that happened. You know, if you're on the road that long, yeah, things happen and people get as they get older they don't remember things the same if, if there's times there are stories right now if all of us are sitting around everybody alive from the grateful dead now 
whoever on the crew. And we talk about, remember that night in San Diego when this happened? Everybody remembers it a little different, you know, and, and sees themselves in a different role in it. And you have to deal with that now because people forget a lot. Like the people in The Grateful Dead, they discount sometimes the Jerry Garcia band. They don't like to talk about it that much because they weren't involved in it. They did play, you know, Kreutzmann played in the band. One yeah. time Phil came down and played bass one time because Khan couldn't be there. But everybody knew about it, but they didn't, they looked at that as time off for them. Like you were saying earlier, Mike, Jerry and I just kept working all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And now they, on hindsight, I wish I'd have kept him out on the road for a whole year because that's what he wanted. He wanted to play every day. And when he didn't, that's when he got in trouble. Ah. Yep. Yeah. But, it's, you know, it's the true artist. Yeah. I, th- I worry about a lot of my peers in comedy that have nothing but the comedy oh, yeah. club and nothing but the hang. And, and it's a lonely world when there's no pandemic and you're five nights alone at a hotel and you're performing in a, in a mall in between a, Applebee's and a and a you know Buster Dave and Buster's or whatever and you're there all day by yourself and the only friend you have is music and now you don't even have a crowd you don't have an outlet you don't have and it's been this is the longest I've gone without performing since I started and it doesn't look yeah. like it's going to start anytime soon so it's just well, this thing yeah. of dealing with that loneliness and I mean we're figuring out well, a way to do it together you know it took me a while when I started doing stand-up uh after Jerry passed uh, friends of mine who had bands said, come on, open up for us. Talk about, you know, Jerry a little bit. So I started just telling funny Grateful Dead stories. And before that, though, I tried doing jokes and that kind of stuff. And, you know, when you finally make an audience laugh, the whole place is laughing. That's a big payback, man. Holy mackerel. That really gets you off to make people laugh. And so it took me years. It took me about 10 years of doing that before I could do it. Now, anytime I go up there, because you uh, you have to learn that craft. It's a hard craft. Well, but you are. You're pretty much up there doing your psychiatric work, too. Exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's, it is. And you know what, though? If you think about this, Steve, the Grateful Dead has always been in my corner. And I don't mean that to sound cheesy, but I never worried about having everything be airtight, set up, pause, punchline, set up, pause, punchline. I like to play around and it would be fun. No, to, you got to. You got to take chances. You got right. to stick your neck out. If you, yeah. That's what Jerry did. He stuck his neck out every night. And he never listened to, he never read critics because critics will say shit about you. And he said, it just make you feel bad. Why bother? Totally. What do they know more than anybody else? It's a feeling. Hey, you know? Man, Leonard Bernstein had the, I think it was him that had the best quote of all time. I'll say it over and over again. He said, I've been all over the world countless times. And one thing I've never seen is a statue of a critic. That's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. <laughs> That's I know perfect. it's a tough job. It's a tough job. Yeah, yeah but you know, I just can't wait to be back out seeing people smile, and and yeah. and I can't wait to be in the crowd. But until then, Steve, um, we will keep doing this, and you keep doing what you're doing, man, because you're the absolute best, yeah. dude. I love you so much, and to hear you say we're friends is an honor. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, if you, if O'Teal likes you, I like you. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about real, real quick. I see you're smoking. What do you got? What is there something you're working on that we could tell our audience oh, about? Well, yeah, you know, because uh, it was a natural thing for me to go into the cannabis business and people, a lot, a lot of people were hitting on us for that Grateful Dead vibe to come into their business. And so we all held back and we waited 
And these people came to me last year, uh, and they are Grizzly Peak, and they are my brothers. And you find the right people who do things the way we did. They're old school in the way that we saved all these old strains, which we always smoke pot, you know. And so now I've come out with a big Steve's line of cannabis. Yeah. And, uh, it's doing really good right now, and Grizzly Peak is the company. And we're now coming out with all these uh, special old strains of the Grateful Dead that we've saved by friends of ours. You see the whole thing about when homegrown in California became popular because it was so hard to get weed into the country that the old strains that we brought around, we got seeds from all over the world as we traveled and we always got the best weed brought to us. People love the Grateful Dead and we saved those seeds and we gave them to friends of ours who went up in the hills of Mendocino, Humboldt, Sonoma, everywhere. And so we've kept some of those alive and nice. that combined with the modern way of growing now and the legality to dream come true. So thank you for mentioning that. Appreciate yeah, of course. It. So everybody support your brain with Steve, big Steve weed. Well, is the lockdown has been unbelievable. People are really smoking a lot of weed right now because it's perfect for the lockdown. It really is. Every day is a year. And so that's why, why we smoked it on the road too because it was perfect for getting down the road. It was the perfect thing. And it really it, you know, that nonsense about it being a gateway drug, it kept you off the other drug. I'm telling you. I'm here to tell you that. Because people that didn't and quit smoking weed, they're, not, they're dead now. Really. Yeah. Jerry smoked weed every day. He never gave up on it. Nice. Yeah, I think alcohol is the gateway drug. Alcohol is the gateway oh, drug. Yeah, why, yeah. why would you? Alcohol, more damage than any other drug ever. Absolutely. Absolutely. Alcohol when you're, and cigarettes. When you're seriously just plowed drunk, that's when cocaine starts to look good. And then exactly. you go down the slide, you know? I think like, chicken shit nitrous is uh, <laughs> is the gateway drug, but that's just me, you know? <laughs> that takes the case, brother. <laughs> You'll come back and hang with us again? We got a lot more to talk about. Hell yeah. About All right. Well, Dude, thank you, God guys. God bless you, man. I love you so much, Steve. Man, yeah. likewise, <sighs> brother. This is a love fest for me. I, I like you guys a lot. And you, O'Teal, are, are always going to be my friend, man. So if you ever need anything, call me. Call you know me. I will, brother. You know I will. Thank you for coming on. Well, now my goal is for him to say that to me at the end of the next podcast we have him on. So <laughs> that's my goal, uh, my mission, Steve. Well, for you if you say. ever need anything, call O'Teal. <laughs> Absolutely. You and me got to have a filter between us. Totally, I, man. I'm I got you. I, 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 that's it. I'm going to crawl before I run. So thank you. <laughs> you look like a guy that might have had a straight jacket on once or twice in his life. <laughs> that's, that's later this afternoon, too. I always go back into it, my cocoon. Hey, you guys stay safe, stay healthy. You too, man. Keep Love it bright in your mind, man. Love you Thank guys. You. Thank you, everybody, for listening and uh, tune in next week for another Comes a Time podcast. Peace. See you soon. All right. That's great, Thanks, man. Guys. Steve, you're Steve, the best, you're, man. You're just <laughs> sorry. You're I, the greatest. I talk too much. I sometimes no. I get talking too much, but it's so much stuff in my head about Jerry. No, man, we, that's all we want to hear. It's yeah, yeah. I had so you many know, questions. I heard like a, go ahead, Jotiel. I'm sorry. No, I was say I, I heard a, a, a. I think it's like a four-hour interview with Yorma, and Yorma said the most profound thing. He goes off on tangents, and and uh, he said, you know, life is in the tangents. You know, you don't, you can't be afraid of the tangents, you know? So that's, that's right. 
and I oh that's what I love, man. Your stream of consciousness, one yeah. thought reminds you of another memory, reminds you of another memory. And you have a steel trap memory, and I'm yeah, so man. jealous of that. Fucking drugs he did. I know Whoa. you can remember a lot. Uh, that's amazing. I, I'm amazed by it myself sometimes, but it's starting to get a little foggy at times. It's starting to get a little foggy. Now. I hear people ask you questions about like they'll be like, oh, the '73 you know, Baltimore or whatever. And you're like, Oh yeah, I remember that room and Dave ran it. And that was like, that guy was cool, man. And his dad was a fisherman and, and you know, everything. And it's like, damn, how can you, if you got, when you had to learn that, you know, in those days you had to know everybody when you came yeah. back, it meant so much to them. If you remembered their name and exactly. nobody else could, nobody yeah. else could remember the guy's names. And I would remember their kid's name. You're the best dude. So it made I a have, big deal. I have 10 million more questions to ask, so we have to have you back We're on. Where I could just you know, get a hold of me. We'll do this again. We don't just have I'm to do sure. it in Jerry days. We'll, we'll, we'll yes. just talk biz. We'll talk about all this stuff. Yeah, awesome, man. Love you, you guys are great. Be safe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.